Hello, and welcome to Your Killer Life, where together we tackle the reality of surviving a killer diagnosis like cancer, and I help guide you through creating your killer life. I am your host, Tammy Grable Woodford, and in this podcast, we aren't leaving anything out as my guests and I share deeply personal insights and experiences as we talk about trauma, loss, treatment options, caregiving, side effects, money. Hey, we open it all up. In fact, we are even going into the forbidden zone to talk about sex, relationships, and mental health. Remember, the conversations you hear on the show are based on unique experiences and varying diagnoses, and we all had our own medical teams. We are not giving medical advice. So if you hear something inspiring, please talk with your providers. All right, are you ready? I know I am. So let's get busy and start building your killer life. Hello, and welcome to Your Killer Life Podcast. I am your alternative host, Griff Woodford. I am in here with a, uh, a cool guy by the name of Mike Baltiera. Mike, you want to say hi? Hey, how's it going, everybody? Uh, as Griff said, my name is Michael Baltiera. I am located in Covington, Washington, and I used to work with Tammy, who was Griff's uh, significant other uh, a few years ago. Um, actually, a little more than a few years ago, probably about a decade ago, and we've kept in contact ever since. And I'm glad to be here today. I'm glad to have been asked to do this with Griff and I'm looking forward to the, the topic and whatever it is we want to discuss today. Yeah, likewise, man. So for our listeners, what we're discussing today effectively is on on the same cancer cancer uh, cancer train. The difference being from the perspective of the caregiver and um in a smaller subset subset for that is the uh, the male aspect of of caregiver. So why is this important? Right. So what will typically, well, I won't say typically, I I don't want to generalize, but often cases, the, um, the person with the disease, they're the one that gets the focus, right? Where in order to support that person, well, exactly that, the primary person who is supporting that is often kind of left in the shadows and that can create problems. Just, I'm only talking from a parent's perspective. I'm not talking from a partner's perspective or even with my, uh, my dad going through prostate cancer about 20 years ago. When you, you, when you as a parent have a child that's going through a dreadful disease, I, unfortunately, both my twins have gone through something. My son, Zach, who's the oldest twin, he went through stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma twice. His younger brother or his twin brother uh, went through Rasmussen's encephalitis when he was six. And so we've, got, we've actually gone through two, actually three stages because Zach uh, had cancer twice, uh, three stages of caregiving trying to take care of children who went through life-threatening illnesses or things that could be pretty catastrophic. And so the female is always expected to be the one who's always going to be there while the male or the whomever partner, um, however you want to look at, you know, the gender roles today, goes to work, puts foot on the table and makes sure that everything's taken care of financially and with insurance and whatever else. Whereas the mother or whomever is designated as the caregiver is the one who's supposed to be the one left behind who's going to you know, provide uh, initial bedside care when they're not at a medical facility, get the medications needed to, to whomever. And though you're really, really focused and you really are occupied a great majority of the day at, at one year, it's your time to take a break, so to speak. That's the time where you sit there and reflect and you wonder what is going on. 
How am I going to do some self-care? How can I take care of myself and work? Can I get the support that I need? Because a lot of people think, especially when you're a guy, oh, you could just suck it up, you know, just put in some intestinal fortitude and just carry on with your day. Dude, you're there to set the example when in reality, the whole thing is, is you're actually crumbling and you're falling apart mentally, emotionally. And if you're spiritual, spiritually as well, because it makes you question what, you know, well, if there's a if there's another being outside of this world, why is he picking on my children? And is he trying to set an example? Did I do something wrong in a previous life or something? And you, you always have these you always have these doubts and these questions, and you and you don't have an answer for it. And you, and you don't have anybody who you can. I mean, you have friends or you have buddies who you may have hobbies with or you may have something in common with. But the problem is when none of them have ever gone through any of this, they have no idea how to how to react when you reach out for help. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and my, my experience with caregiving, obviously, is certainly different than yours, not from a, a parent perspective, but it, as you mentioned, a significant other. You know, my brief background and what I did has been effectively in the combat field uh, my entire adult life, aside from the last four years, really, which was effectively Tammy's diagnosis. The, uh, the high stress career, that type of thing, it, it attracts a certain personality type, which to your point, always kind of expecting that the the feminine element of a relationship or a unit is the one in charge of, of caregiving. You know, I mean, it, it often feels like the masculine has a disadvantage in that. You know, we're not necessarily, I won't say built, but our our biology doesn't necessarily reflect that um, that shepherding aspect. It's the the hunter gatherer, right? Just as, as exactly as you said, you know, the one going out providing, making sure that the caretaker is taken care of, you know, or the, the person that needs care has the, you know, appropriate financial stability and that type of thing. Also from, from a younger age too, we're also, as men, we're ingrained from society, even from family members that, you know, you're not allowed to show emotion. You're not allowed to be upset. You're not allowed to wear your heart on your sleeve. You know, you're a guy, you know, you're, you're the, you're the rock. You have to be concrete. You have to be the one who sets the example for everybody else. If you want to make through, make it through these difficult times, then you gotta, like I said earlier, you gotta suck it up, you know, and that's not fair because that's why people, I found a lot of my friends who suffer, suffer from depression or anxiety because they've never had an outlet to be able to, they don't have that safety valve that most people may have, whether it's going to train martial arts or going to the gym or whatever else. So a lot of these people are also, they're not introvert. They're very introverted. They're not extrovert. So they have a hard time showing their emotions. They have a hard time ex expressing themselves to others. And so that's why, you know, a great majority of the people I know who have done any type of uh, oncology care or any type of caregiver services for their loved ones, they are suffering and they're suffering in silence and there's no one out there to listen to them. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. I mean, it, it, from young age and, uh, you know, my my personal career path, I mean, that was just a staple. That was not negotiable. You, you are mission oriented all the time. Uh, it's not saying that you can't have emotion, but the job always comes first. You know, there there is not that. Uh, this is your allotted decompression or, um, you know, self-introspection time is mission first. When you're done, you take the time that you can, then you move on right back to mission. And, you know, the, the reality is, is that this, there's a lot of far-reaching implications in that mindset. And it does develop into the caregiver mindset, particularly for male caregivers. Uh, again, I don't like to gen generalize, but, you know, uh, from the breast cancer perspective, you know, that's obviously the the majority of that is is women and to me now anyway it's a pretty obvious parallel why the divorce rate is so incredibly high between husband and wife who experience that you know really any oncology type uh 
treatment or um, cancer-oriented disease because there is that, I won't say one-sided, but I, I will in some cases say unfair expectation of both parties to not just have to go through this horrifying and traumatic disease, but also maintain a, a societal and social norm of a, a gender role, for lack of a better term, right? When in reality, this is a, this is a communal partnership. It's It's not about race or gender. It's about what each person needs in that moment in order to be successful. I, I would say the reason why it's a, a not not more common knowledge to that is because it's freaking hard, man. Like it's, it's difficult to be vulnerable with someone who is already vulnerable in a vulnerable state. And as a guy, and I'll speak for myself and myself alone on this one, uh, you know, when I would see Tammy hurting in any capacity, whether it was it, it, uh, physical care or psychological care, my my stuff goes out the window. I do not care about what I'm feeling right now. My job is to make her better, at least as better as I possibly can with the skill sets that I have, the experience that I have. You know, it was about a year and a half of that of just powering through. And then, holy crap, man, like it was just about, you know, cut the parachute time. You know, I mean, really, I have no one to blame myself on that. And fortunately, you know, we within that year and a half, we developed the the strength and bond of a, of a relationship that that allowed for kind of that effective meltdown. Right. And understanding that, um, you know, well, it's about time, dude. <laughs> you know, and like that was pretty much her her exact statement is like, well, where have you been the whole time? You know, I mean, you you have this ability. You just need to talk to me about it. Right. So in order to keep my son motivated throughout his, you know, um, first his chemotherapy treatments and then eventually his bone marrow transplant, I wouldn't show any emotion in front of him at all. I would save it for, this sounds really lame, <laughs> just you know, go in the shower for 20 minutes and just let, just cry, you know? Yeah. What can you do? My son and I, we both uh, trained Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So at the time I would go to the gym, I would be able to sit with my friends and talk to them and, you know, they would always offer encouragement and you know, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional here, but you know, it just was hard. It's a hard time. And that's the point of the podcast, yeah, man. So, I mean, we're, we're looking for that emotion and that it's, that is not just an okay thing, but the appropriate thing to display when you're talking about something like this. You know, I mean, it's, it's critical. And what, what we're both experiencing right now, I mean, that's that's the primary catalyst to success or failure in a caregiving relationship is being able to show that and, you know, realize that it's not, again, it's not just okay. It's, it's mandatory. You, you have to do this or you uh, it destroys you. I mean, it's just that simple. And then the hard part, too, is when you have to go and uh, explain to your employer, like, hey, I need, I need all this time off or I need to take care of myself. And then they don't quite understand what you're going through. So they really aren't too willing to be flexible, so to speak, or, or accommodating. And, you know, when my son first went through cancer, the first time the people that I was working with at the time, they were like, you know, take the time that you need. The work will always be here. You know, do what you can. If you, if you do remotely from home. So I had a lot of downtime with them at the hospital. So I would just log in, get my work done and piece of cake, you know, and then when I come back, it's like, okay, you, all your projects are caught up. What happened? Well, what am I going to do during this 48 hour stay during chemotherapy? I'm just going to log in and do my work, you know, and, um, and keep me occupied. And then, you know, the second time it wasn't, unfortunately it wasn't as accommodating. Oh, excuse me for a second. Yep. Oh man. Okay. Allergies. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I got I'm hit in the face kidding. with a rock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, that's, 
Yeah, it's, it's just it's challenging. It's a real it's a hard challenge. Just uh, it is. It, well, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's it's really not just interesting, but kind of cool. What you just brought up is kind of that um, short term. I can do it. I'll, I'll do anything you need type thing. I've not like with em- employers or family or friends or something like that. I've noticed, you know, at least in my case, families, uh, uh, they're they're pretty they're pretty into it. Like they're there for the long term. But there's this big mis- misconception, per, uh, whether it's with the actual patient or the caregiver, that this is supposed to take a specific amount of time. And usually like that, that overwhelming volume of support, whether it's through social media or through, uh, you know, uh, per- personal interaction or relationships, it's like two months. You know, you get like two months of oh, this, this flood of anything that you need, anything we can do, we're there for you. And then it just kind of drops off. And, you know, my, my just my experience is it took us four years from diagnosis to getting back to a semblance of, of positive control over our own lives where we're not having to to deal with the 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 hospital visits, the recovery times, the the psychological aspects of this. It was four years, man. You know, so and that's, you know, I'm directing that at even just the patient, you know, let alone the the caregiver aspect is in in that sense, you're not even on the radar. You know, the the patient is the one that, that is getting that that support once that drops off. I mean, then it's just it, there. It's it's not you're you're expected to go back to business as normal. And, you know, fortunately for Tammy and I, we, we are both in professions where we, we really could set our own hours and control the amount of workload that we had without, you know, missing a mortgage payment or something like that. But, you know, there's got there's so the overwhelming majority cannot do that. And I would say that's that's one of the hardest parts and not just my own experience, but the observed experience of others, you know, the other other kind of cancer buddies that we have of that is a huge contribution to just the overall psychological stress of of the disease. And, you know, any any long term disease, not just oncology related, but that kind of expectation that, okay, well, it's been X months or a year or something like that. Like, why are you not back in the office type thing? You know, right, the, exactly. that's, that's not how that works, man. <laughs> you know, the, this is a long term process. Right. You know, not to, not to discredit any of the companies. I understand they have, you know, they have products and they have revenue they need to generate, but you know, as we're seeing today, given the people, the ability to work remotely with Paramount, uh, especially right now with what's going on, you know, it just—I'm just glad the mind—the mindset is shifting to instead of having asses and seats, you can have people work from the house, and they can still be just as productive. I, and I think some of it has to do with people wanting just to micromanage others. I mean, I'm not saying one particular person, but you know, it could just be a whole span of people. Just they have to be in the know. They have to be in. They have to have their hands in everything. But you trust your your troops, so to speak. I mean, you, you sound like you're a military guy. You prior service. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and a okay. bunch of other stuff after that. Yeah. So I was in the Marine Corps and one of the things they always taught us was leadership. You know, you have to put your faith in your troops, trust them enough to do the work. If they screw up. You know, the first time you're emphatic, you're just like, hey, you know what? You did a real, you did a decent effort, you know, but you did this wrong. Let's try and correct it the next time. But if they keep screwing up, that's when you counsel them. 
you know, you, you, and that, that needs to transfer over. And then, you know, I know, I understand a lot of people hate the military. I get it. But when you have people who don't have any idea on how to be a leader, but they're a boss, then it causes friction. And that's, then that, causes, yes, it does. You know, and so then the one thing, I mean, what, what branch were you in? If you don't want me asking. Army. I was army. So you may have a code of ethics or you may have the, like we had the rifleman's credo. We had the brotherhood. We had the esprit de corps. It doesn't matter how much you hate someone. doesn't matter how much you love one of your fellow men. We're all on the same team. You kick, if someone gets kicked, if someone gets knocked down, you help them up. You're only as fast as your slowest guy. And that's, uh, I think, that's how, you know, once people start understanding those leadership principles and then it actually makes them a better person. So it, it just, I honestly believe that once people start to come to the realization that, you know, you don't have to sit there and watch what people are doing all the time, just have a a check in maybe once or twice a month, maybe three times or once a week, whatever the case may be to make sure the person is on track. That's all that matters. In-state focus. Exactly. And then I can use that person, whomever, whether it's a father or a mother or, you know, whomever that they're taking care of their significant other, their children, then they can take care of business during the day. And when they have a downtime, they can get focused on work. Because I don't know about you, man, sitting in the office eight hours of the day, half the day spent in meetings anyway. So that's a big time suck. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, work workplace efficiency, and that, that you know that's another thing that, that really does contribute not just to you know caregiver and and um, the the patient, but the family of that as well. You know, I mean, if, if just the unit period, you know, if you because I mean, we all have to work. That's that's it. You know, that that's non-negotiable, <laughs> particularly going through a disease like that, where even with, you know, really high test insurance, it's exceptionally expensive out of pocket type thing. So, you know, also the workplace efficiency, you know, how how able is that, you know, in, in your case in particular, how able are you to actually focus on work that needs to be done as opposed to what is just kind of being mixed in the pot as it were just to just to kill time you know to to check the block on time in in an office type thing so there's this is a multifaceted thing and there that's um certainly not gonna be one episode i I think we'll probably end up revisiting this as well and then another thing too is um you're talking about the financial responsibilities as well as uh time in the office so i know this is going to sound really really bad or morbid but after my son was considered in remission in 2006 something in the back of my mind told me like you know what just be prepared. And so I didn't take any vacation time or any PTO. So when the time came for him to spend a month at Seattle Children's Hospital for his bone marrow transplant recovery, I had enough time on the books where I can just take time off and not worry about, you know, hey, when are you going to be back in the office? So that was that was taken care of. One thing that people don't know either, and they don't know unless you unless you tell them or unless they have the you know the the smart to go look for it themselves, is Financial assistance. People don't know that every hospital out there has got resources for those who can't afford to pay their bills. All you have to do is just go to the finance department and say, hey, you know what? I may have a single income or I just lost my job or I'm, I'm put on FMLA. I don't have a source of income. What can I do? And then chances are they're going to give you an application for financial assistance. Luckily, my children, uh, well, especially Zach, he was, he was an adult. So technically, he had no income. So he got approved for financial assistance. So whatever the insurance didn't pay. It was all taken care of through through grants and funds that the hospital had in reserve. People need to really look into that because uh, the last thing you want to do is go bankrupt because you can't afford your your hospital bills or you want some overzealous twenty one year old out of college who's working for a credit collector coming after you for a five dollar copay you couldn't afford. Right, right. 
Absolutely. And, you know, that was uh, in, in our case in particular, that was a, a, a long term struggle as well as getting the financial aspect squared away. And again, even having really very decent insurance, both of us, uh, it was it was a mess, quite frankly, I mean, because exactly what you said, you know, there's there's this removal of uh, of humanity and morality when it comes to how the insurances interact with uh, the patients or the people going through care who require care. It's hard to maintain faith in a system when, at least in our aspect, there was um, there was very little humanity involved. Put it that way. I mean, we've talked a lot about of, of a lot of aspects of being a caregiver because there's there are a lot of them. So I want to ask, what was one? Of, what was the hardest part for you to adapt to during the process? What was the what, what was just the most difficult part about being in a caregiving role as a guy? Uh, my son, Zach's pretty stoic himself. He'll never be the one to show you if he's, you know, having a bad day or if he's upset about something. And so they're, they're having the talk with him like, Hey dude, let it out, man. <laughs> We're all human. It, it doesn't hurt to hurt. <laughs> so, um, but just this, you know, watching my son suffer, that was the hardest. I would agree pretty much wholeheartedly with what you just said. Uh, seeing, Seeing the person that you love the most in some cases suffer. I mean, that as far as that um, emotional impact, that was the biggest one for me. As far as the skill set, I, I would kind of call it skill set. And also what you mentioned is not just um, saying that, you know, it's it's okay to to be having a hard time, but also having to learn very small cues from that person to know without having to ask that, Okay, you you are having you are in trouble here. So you know having having that information, how can we fix that type thing? You know that was that was actually quite a learning curve for me. It's not something I ever really had to, at least in that context, really had to put a lot of emphasis on. I, I would have to say it's a really common theme as to to any caregiver. You know what what the struggles are. And and on that note, you know, we, we have different stories of caregiving, of course, but do, do you think the relationship of care matters in relation to what we go through as caregivers? You know, I mean, it, for you, it's your son. For me, it's my wife. Do you think there's a lot of differences to, you know, the issues that accumulate for us in that caregiving? Well, I'm not quite understanding your question, but I'm guessing that has it, it, has it changed my perspective on how I treat others? Absolutely. You tend to see who your true friends are and who your true family members are when you go through a struggle. And those who still can treat you, I've, you know, those who treat you pretty poorly, then you can just cut them out of your life if you have to, if you don't want, if you don't have to deal with them on a daily basis, that is, or a weekly basis or whatever the case may be. But um, yeah, I mean, our family is definitely a lot closer than we used to be. At least my wife and my children are with and, and myself. That is I've, I've grown closer to a good group of my friends and there are family members I have where we just grown further apart. So it ebb and flows, you know, you get good people coming into your life and you got the good people leaving. So, and then you have those who just don't understand what you're going through and they, they don't understand why you can't hang out with them or, Hey, you know, you, all these treatments are over with, dude. Why can't you just come and hang out? Well, yeah, well, you know, just we were told that you know he may have side effects up to ten to fourteen days after his treatment, and uh, uh, sadly that happened. Where 
he had a really gnarly uh, gnarly allergic allergic reaction to one of his um, immunotherapy meds and you know would ended up in critical care for a week and almost killed him and so um yeah people don't they don't quite understand and you just get people who think that nothing bad's ever going to happen to them so they still treat everybody else like garbage and you know just I mean, one of those days they'll get a wake up call you know karma you know it tends to cash itself out tenfold so Definitely. That's a, actually a really good answer. It's kind of the one I was hoping for. The reality is, again, it doesn't matter what the relationship is. It doesn't matter what the disease is, is that there are so many common threads of the caregiver and the patient role. And I, I really like where you went with this is because, you know, same thing for us as well is, you know, starting with this large group of what, you know, we would consider support, right? And then realizing that that group is a lot smaller than we we thought. And I, I would say for for us anyway, is it became a lot easier to A, recognize and then B, get rid of those negative influences, those negative presences that, you know, we we just assumed, right, through interaction or, or casual friendship that, oh, yeah, these these people are good to good to be around. You know, in effect, our give a shit pretty much just broke. Right. It became a lot more important to focus on what is actually important as opposed to the facade of something important. You know, that's what I would see as one of the one of the rewards of of caregiving and and just going through on, on both parties, both the person who requires care and the caregiver. You know, that's what, the next thing I wanted to ask you is where do you see the reward as being a caregiver? I think you I mean, and you did talk you know touched on that a little bit already, but I'd like to you know, kind of delve into that a little bit more because it's, you know, so far it's just been all the horrible stuff of being a caregiver and going through disease. And the reality is that it's, it's not just that. Right. And you know, the, the, on the, on the, on the flips on the bottom side are the dark side of being a caregiver. And, and it's morally maybe because it's just my opinion and the way I look at things. When I see people complain and bitch and moan about stuff, that's just so petty and trivial. You're like, dude, your life's not that bad. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. So what you're, you know, the, your, your favorite football team lost or your, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, there's other things to worry about on the positive side though. You learn to live every day as if it's your last or to be you know, be aware of the unexpected. I mean, I don't, I, what's, I'm trying to phrase it in a way that makes it doesn't make me sound too much like a, like a dick, but um, you know, there may be days where I don't feel like doing anything. That's fine. But if there's things I want to do, I'm going to make sure I get it done. Um, one of the things that Zachary and I talked about was we were going to travel more this year before this whole pandemic thing started happening. So we're going to, have to put that on the back burner for a little bit. But, you know, just uh, being able to go out and enjoy life, whether it's just going for a drive, whether it's going hiking, whether it's going out to do photography, whether it's to go out and watch our favorite bands play. We never had anything that we couldn't do. There wasn't anything we didn't want to do. And, and that was on top of going to jujitsu three to five days a week and, you know, and just going to work. I would go to work and, you know, do what I needed to do, come home, and then we would go have a good time. And, you know, just, um, you know, you mentioned earlier the, the divorce rate. I see more people and not necessarily caregivers, but, you know, some of them may be caregivers, but they, they also get, they also divorce over things that, that may have already been in place before all this, you know, cascaded into a big financial and emotional roller coaster. So luckily my wife and I, we've been together for 
gosh, we got married in 93. So we started dating in 91. So we've been, been together for a little bit. And the only times we ever talked about splitting up was because we didn't have any money. <laughs> and once you start to realize, once you start to realize that just, I mean, yeah, money is important, but it's not the end all be all. Then and you don't, and then you have to start, uh, my, my jujitsu coach, James Foster talks about, you know, making three columns with three different colors of ink and the stuff you can't control, the stuff that you can somewhat control and things you definitely have control over. Then once you start to realize what you don't have any control over or some little control over, those become things you shouldn't really worry about. And once you start discarding that inf- out of your life, your life becomes much better. And, and you start and you start to accept how things go. So when people always ask me, like, well, how do you deal with your son having cancer twice? And it's like, well, you know what? Life de- deals you shitty cards sometimes. You just have to roll with it. And you just have to hopefully, you know, pull out your, your ace out of your pocket and, you know, and, and you get a full house or something. You know, just you got to you just got to be mentally positive and i do believe in the power of positive reinforcement so you know people just gotta stop thinking so negatively about stuff especially stupid shit you can't control (laughs) that is that's great mike and that actually rolls into kind of our our next uh next subject in the in the podcast and that's um called the locus of control the um the the modality of how we process our our fate more or less right and what you just said is is the exact example of that so locus of control is kind of on a sliding scale between internal control and external control so the um for our listeners here the definition of locus of control is the degree to which people believe that they as opposed to external forces have control over the outcome of events in their lives concept was developed by Julian P. Rotter in 1954 and has since become an aspect of personality studies. So from the caregiver perspective, at least in, in, in this context, the hardship for, and just speaking for myself, but this is also observed experience of others. One of the biggest hardships that I, that I went through is trying to control everything. And that, you know, my, my prior career reflected that. I mean, that was what you do, particularly in a leadership element of that career path, is you are you're responsible for controlling everything and getting to a place where you don't have control anymore over so many things. Being able to exactly what you just said, the three columns, right? What you can control, what you can't control, and maybe even what you what you would like to control. The reality of and well, actually, I'll, I'll back up a little bit because I was asked the same question is, you know, how are you dealing with with cancer, with Tammy having cancer? And I, this was later on, you know, once um, I kind of got that light bulb moment of what my responsibilities actually are. And I said, well, I'm I'm not dealing with that. I'm dealing with my responsibilities as they come up. I'm not dealing with cancer. I'm dealing with being able to make sure that Tammy is comfortable, that she gets to doctor's appointments on, on time, that she's recovering properly. I'm not thinking about cancer. I'm thinking about her in that moment, which is an exact reflection of what you just said. And uh, that's where... I have personally, I mean, not just my own personal experience, but the observed experience of others where from particularly from a man's perspective, you know, we're again, I'd say even socially conditioned that we're the guys that fix stuff. You know, we're we're the uh, we're the repairmen of problems, period. That locus of control when centered towards the uh, towards the internal becomes a real double edged sword. And the thing is that after a certain point, particularly when a disease takes years to even get through a manageable portion of 
that element of control and being so hyper focused on controlling everything, you can't sustain that. Like that that is the definition of burnout. You know, so to exactly your point is figuring out what can I not control? What am I not supposed to try and control? And what are my actual responsibilities? And that's not just as a caregiver. That's as a person, right? (laughs) It's it's a pretty far reaching application of what the really important aspects of your job as a human on this earth are. Good stuff, man. Really good stuff. So my question to you. While you were going through this, what was your safety outlet? What what did you do to take care of yourself while you were? Because I I, I can tell you what I did, but I want to hear what what Griff did. Well, for me, it was it was a couple of things. Really, two main main aspects, and ideally very intertwined. My if it was something that was developing, you know, emotionally within me that that was not necessarily reflective of Tammy's thing in our our relationship, I go outside, I hunt, I fly fish, you know, I, that's that's my where where my soul lies is in in the uh, in the wilderness. So doing that is my kind of immediate fix recharge type thing. Ultimately, I would say the biggest mode of self care for me was just talking with my wife. You know, I mean, we're, we we are in this together. As far as I'm concerned, the majority of my day, she's the only person that matters to me. You know, and, and not just in, the, well, I would say particularly in the caregiver aspect, like that is my my majority of my focus on a daily aspect. So rather than trying to shield her from what I'm experiencing and, and trying to self-correct any, you know, emotional or psychological difficulties I'm having is being able to bring those to her and develop a mutual solution, not just something I have to go figure out on my own. You know, I've, I've seen from other, again, kind of cancer bodies that have not really been successful in, in a relationship due to those, those roles is that's one of those things that is missing consistently. And I'm sure that there, you know, are existing, uh, struggles or difficulties in a relationship, but going through something like that and not, being in that capacity of this is the person that I am relying on for. And I should say that we are the people relying on each other for our, our solutions. Right. So really that was, that's the number one. I mean, you know, just being open, honest, and in some cases very vulnerable with my wife, you know, I mean, because we are a unit, this is not a, not a one man show. Understood. The thing for me was, a, to, to stay occupied so I didn't have a whole lot of time to let my mind wander. And so that, you know, when I'm not with Zach at his oncology appointments or if I wasn't at work, it was going to the gym to train with my uh, jujitsu buddies because, uh, you know, it just, you know, the, the whole team spirit, you know, the whole esprit de corps, the brotherhood, you know, that we, that we had in the military, it's there in, in jujitsu whether we want to admit it or not, because it definitely, the, each gym is different, but the, the team I belong to, we definitely believe in family. We're all a family and we all take care of each other. And um, the second aspect was in my son, Zach gave me a whole bunch of riffraff over this, but I filmed a lot of footage while we were going through this. And we had some vlogs that we put up every, every couple of days. And we also uh, vlogged his bone marrow transplant because we wanted people to see, Hey, because you you go out and look for stuff and there's really no information out there except for people who are like, oh, I'm on day seven post-treatment. But you never get to see the actual treatment or what they go through for like the stem cell collection and, you know, 
everything else. So we, we did all that. And I think I have enough footage to, and I'm actually going to start working on it soon. Now that I got a lot of more free time is I'm going to put out a little documentary about his, his cancer journey. That would be awesome. Even though I don't get, get a whole lot of views on it, which is fine. I do get important questions emailed to me. Like I, I had someone from Kuwait email me. It's like, Hey, you know, my dad's going through Hodgkin's lymphoma for the third time. He went through chemo, went to the bone marrow transplant. And now he's got to, because when you have a uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, unlike leukemia, you, the, if you do have a bone marrow transplant, you they have a, what they call autologous transplant, which is where your own, you're your own donor. They collect your own stem cells and then they just blast you full of chemo. And then they give you your stem cells back. If it's successful, great. You don't relapse. You're, you live life. Uh, unfortunately, there's a small percentage of people who still have to worry about cancer coming back. And then the, unfortunately, this gentleman, his, his father experienced that and they were going to come to Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. So like, hey, would you mind answering some questions? So instead of just putting together an email form, like, hey, let's make a video. And so he was really happy about that. So uh, I, I think I do believe in the power of you know social media and getting the message out there to people because there's going to be that one person who's going to find your stuff. And you're going to answer the questions for them and they're going to send you a thank you note. And this is not the first time it's happened. It happened also when uh, my, you know, Zachary's twin brother, Josh, when they were six was going through his Rasmussen's battle and we would, you know, do updates on our website and we would get emails like, Hey man, I'm glad you, you're doing this because we live in the UK and we're on a waiting list here to get this done and we don't know what to expect. And so there's, like I said, there's always going to be that small percentage. You're going to find you. They're going to thank you for doing it. So that is absolutely right. And that, that's, that's really cool. Like, this is actually going pretty well. Um, so all the stuff that I've, I've written down as far as bullet points, you're kind of really seamlessly just leading right into it. It's pretty rad. Yeah, right. Yeah. So the, um, the, the kind of the parting shot here, you know, where I'd like to, to go with this is, you know, finding, uh, you know, our, our own our own roles once the like the real scary part of of the disease and the scary part of caretaking begins to subside you know once you can kind of get out of that sympathetic nervous system response of everything's terrifying all the time and realize that you know because we've been in this in this uh process you know roles have changed uh ideas and goals have now changed and you know what what you just said is is also i think a really critical component of the caregiver role in general is once there is that more or less in state because i mean you're never really done there's always that kind of over overhead thought of you know if it comes back when it comes back that type of thing but once you're able to kind of normalize and get get into a new routine I, I can't see how it's not the responsibility of both the caregiver and the patient to try to provide some guidance for others who are just beginning in this process because it's, it's a hard one. It really is. Yeah. And, and, and I'm always one to let people know if you have questions, don't be afraid to ask whether it, right. you know, especially if it's directed towards me, because you know, it's something I don't want anybody to go through without a whole lot of information. I don't want them to go through a period. I mean, if they, if we all lived in a perfect world, no one would ever have to go through these dreaded diseases. But unfortunately, that's not the case. And some of us are just predisposed to, you know, genetic makeups make us more prone to diseases. And you know that I'm sure Tammy knows that. My son Zach knows that because he he always blamed himself. But then he had to come. He came to, finally came to the realization that it's just genetic. You know, just you don't get Hodgkin's lymphoma you know, environmentally, it's, it's just part of his 
DNA makeup or gene makeup. So, you know, and and trying to pass information to people when, you know, we're lucky we're, we're, we're in the Seattle area. We've got really good resources for oncology services, whether it's through Seattle children's or UW or Fred Hutch or SCCA, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. A lot of people don't have resources like that. You know, they have, they may be in some rural area and they have some mom and pop doctor office they go to and, you know, and then they just don't get the care that they need or, or they don't have the answers for these people. And, you know, and if people find me and they are like, Hey dude, I'm tired to bother you. Can I talk to you about some? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't care what time of the day it is. You can get a, drop me an email. I'll get back to you. Yep. Yeah. And the exact same here. Uh, Tammy obviously is a lot more active with that. She's a lot more of a personality than I am. I'm, you know, the kind of the introverted behind the scenes guy, but uh, you know, e- even still, you know, there's, there, there is that outreach and, you know, where, where I, I personally have felt my responsibility is to help facilitate what Tammy's doing and to, to help, broaden that scope and also exactly why we're doing the podcast right now is you know this is something that you know i actually did a bit of a youtube search and uh, you know other than seeing some of your videos there's not a lot of perspective from caregiver and there's even less from male caregiver on this and i mean this this is it's critical to not just the individual in the unit but also how it is viewed on a societal level you know what not just the caregiver and also the patient need to be successful, but that as a unit, you know, how, how can we return to being productive? How can we return to being effectively self-sufficient? Right. And, and timelines for that. Yeah. I just wanted to dovetail off your last comment about males, not especially caregivers, not putting information out there about their own experiences and being, you know, the one that take care of everything. So I found when I was doing the same thing, I was looking for um, just information from people who've gone through bone marrow transplants or people who've gone through oncology, you know, visits for the second time within a short amount of time. Because unfortunately, this is, you know, Zach had spent the last better part of five years going through cancer. Then he had a, maybe a two year, two and a half year break. And then unfortunately came back. And you know, I, I would find people who put out videos from, they're like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, they're the patient. They're, it's not the caregiver. Their parents didn't want to talk or their significant other didn't want to talk. And there's one girl I found who's, I, I don't know exactly where she's at. I think she's in the Midwest because she keeps talking, she keeps talking about going to the Mayo Clinic for her treatments. And she's going through the same thing Zach went through, but you know, her husband's never the one doing any of the videos. It's just her talking about, you know, things are coming up and things are, you know, this, that, and the other. And just, talking about her, her triumphs and talking about her, you know, you know, some of the things that some of the setbacks that she had, or, you know, just some of the frustrations she has also because of the game, the process, the, the, the bureaucratic red tape you have to go through to get stuff done. And, and, and that's one thing that people need to understand is like, you know, yes, your insurance is there to help you, but they're also there to, to make money. And they're also there to, to not spend money. And there are going to be times where you're going to be fighting tooth and nail for your insurance. Or if you get lucky, you're going to have a really good provider who's going to do the battle for you. And we were lucky. Seattle Children's, they took care of everything. You know, Seattle's been getting a bad rap recently because of some of the stuff that's been going on, like with mold and stuff. I mean, that's it's sad. It's it's, unex, it's it's unexcusable. I understand that. But they've got a lot of construction going on. I'm not making excuses for them. But people see the bad side of everything and then they just start hammering on it. You know, and it's just like, you know for all the little things that are bad that you find, they do a whole lot of stuff. That's really, really good. And one of the things that they do really, really good, they take care of their people. They take care of, they take care of their patients. 
And you're not just a, a number. You are actually an individual there that makes you know, that they, they know you're important. They don't treat you like just another person in a bed. And, you know, everybody at, at children's was awesome. You know, and if you can get, find that, that caregiver, not the caregiver, but if you can find the medical provider, that's actually going to be there to support you and, and offer words of encouragement and are emotional with you. When you have your breakdowns then you found a good person to take care of you. Yeah, that's, that's great information. That's, um, you know, it, it's, it's a hard thing to find too. You know, particularly in the beginning of the process, you know, I mean, it starts usually with the primary care physician type thing, right? You realize you have a cough or something's not quite right. And then it just progresses into this, oh, holy shit, this is bad. Then, you know, the the different doctor interviews through through oncologists, through, through surgeons, frankly, it's overwhelming. And, you know, I was fortunate to be with Tammy, who really knew what she was doing from the start. Like she had done her research. She knew the best course of treatment for her based on data, based on statistics. And she was set in that, you know, so that that helped us weed that out quite a bit. But there's so many that that don't that are just completely blindsided by, you know, the the killer diagnosis. Right. And are just kind of left twisting in the wind. So any resources for people like that, I mean, th- you know, thank you for bringing those to, to, to attention for sure. For sure. And, and also um, one thing that people don't understand or they don't know about, I didn't know about this until I looked into it is that your, your insurance or your employer also may have advocates for you as well. You know, if you don't have the resources to get stuff done, whether it's for financial reasons or healthcare coverage or, you know, in my case was just uh, needed someone to talk to, to try and get, um, you know, someone to talk to, you know, whether it's for therapeutic reasons or not. There are, there are people who are third party representative of the employees, not the employer who are there to make sure that, you know, that you're, you're taken care of without any bias or any type of uh, animosity or any type of blowback. So, and, and that's how it should be, you know, it's not your fault that you can't come to work because you have people to take care of. And if you get shit on because of that, then, then, and if they, if they want to let you go, or if it's time to move on that, that then you have to ask, ask yourself, how important is this paycheck? You know? And, and, and unfortunately, I'm, a lot of people go through that. They have to make up their mind as to whether they are going to go to work or they're going to take care of their significant other, or they're going to take care of their children. It's pretty shitty. You have to make that decision. But in today's world, it could be at any time in time, you know, any, any point in time, but yeah, man, I don't think you should have to make that decision. So I'm I'm really glad that Washington State's taking the right direction and and letting people pay for FMLA time off, you know, through the deductions and they're starting the first of this year or I think it was this year, but uh, you know, FMLA only guaranteed that you had a job and they didn't have to pay you and you had to take your PTO first. But at least now, at least now you have some type of stipend coming your way because you're actually paying into a program that's actually similar to your uh, your insurance. So hopefully, uh. Hopefully we'll start following other countries' rules and or their guidelines in regards to like time off or maternity care or paternity care or long term care, whatever the case may be, because you know, man, being being a slave to the grind really sucks. <laughs> yes, it does. And it, it, it does. You know, it's just again one more thing, one more critical thing to add on top of, you know, potentially losing the one of the most people excuse me, one of the most important people in your life. You know, there's um so yeah, absolutely right, and you know, thank you again for the information and um, just a freaking rad interview, man. Hey, if there's anybody out there who wants to check out some of the, the the Zach cancer videos, if you find me on YouTube, you can find me MJ, which is my first two initials for Michael John, and then Baltier, which is B is in boy, A L T is in Tom, 
I-E-R-R-A. So MJ Baltiera. That's on YouTube. If you want to check out some of my videography stuff, that's at MikeBaltiera.com. And also you can find me on Instagram at Mike Baltiera Photo. So those are the three ways you can find me online. And those are the three places I'm always going to be responding to. And if you need to get a hold of me, um, there's a contact form on my webpage, or you can just send me an email at hello at MikeBaltiera.com. All right. Awesome, man. Thank you very much. Yeah, sure. I appreciate you. Again, I'd like to thank all our listeners for joining us. And we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to Your Killer Life. And don't forget to subscribe. For more information about what you heard on today's show, visit us at yourkillerlife.com or visit our YouTube channel. You will also find us in all the usual places on social media. We have another great episode queued up for you next week. And until then, keep building your killer life.